Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, earlier this year, the New York Times ran a column helpfully headlined, The Simple Reason the Left Won't Stop Losing, in which David Leonhardt claimed that left-wing movements have often prioritized purity over victory and encouraged progressives to break with orthodoxy. One way to do that by, quote, announcing that fracking and nuclear energy are crucial to fighting climate change, close quote. That fits with corporate media's approach to fracking, which, as Joshua Cho noted for FAIR.org, prioritizes the supposed risks to the electoral prospects of Democrats who call for banning it over the prospects of human civilization's survival. We'll talk about why fracking is still bad with Mitch Jones policy director at Food and Water Action and Food and Water Watch. Also on the show, the fact that no Louisville police officer was even charged with the March 13th killing of Breonna Taylor is only one outrageous aspect of that terrible story that is layered with injustice. Our guest says that our outrage and anger and sorrow for Taylor can be coupled with an understanding of the broader picture of this country's decades-long war on drugs that set the conditions for that night. Matt Sutton is Director of Media Relations at Drug Policy Alliance. That's coming up, but first we'll take a quick look back at some recent press. The Trump presidency has run roughshod over many norms of democracy, but one of his most dangerous moves is the weaponization of the powers of government against his political opponents. As Julie Holler reminded recently for FAIR.org, he's never shied away from talk of it. All those chants of lock her up at his rallies make that clear. But as the 2020 election nears, Trump's tolerance for democratic checks on his power has eroded and he's openly pressured his cabinet members to use the levers of state power to target his opponents and aid his re-election. While the occasional analysis piece or op-ed correctly labels this authoritarian behavior an abuse of power, these takes were largely overshadowed by bizarrely blasé front-page reports framing the story as a spat between Trump and his cabinet. Trump bar at odds over slow pace of Durham investigation, announced in October 8th Associated Press headline. That's about the effort to have Connecticut U.S. Attorney John Durham dig into the origin of the Russia probe. The Washington Post had a similar take. Down in the polls and yearning for an October surprise, Trump lashes at his most loyal allies. A New York Times headline at least gestured toward Trump's actual opponents, but it still centered the Trump versus his cabinet story. The headline, Trump lashes out at his cabinet with calls to indict political rivals. These pieces offered readers little understanding of the gravity of this problem, with AP blandly explaining that, quote, the president is aggressively trying to use all of the levers of his power to gain ground in an election that has been moving away from him. Close quote. As though pushing the Justice Department to indict his political opponents were merely an electoral strategy, like door to door canvassing or lawn signs. The next day, the Times ran a story that at the very end mentioned the Hatch Act in the context of Trump's use of White House grounds for campaign purposes. Quote, the president joked about the agitation he had caused among his critics about how he may have violated the Hatch Act, which prohibits federal employees from engaging in political activities while on the job by using White House grounds for political purposes. He said he thought he would do it more. 
He pitched the idea of staging events and concerts on the South Lawn every week up through Election Day. He appeared to be half kidding, but half intrigued by the idea, aides said. Close quote. And that's the end of the article. Back in August, ProPublica and WNYC reported that Trump officials had already been cited 13 times for Hatch Act violations by federal investigators with the Office of Special Counsel, with many more investigations underway. Kellyanne Conway alone was responsible for so many violations that an OSC report labeled them, quote, egregious, notorious, and ongoing, close quote. And they went so far as to formally ask Trump to remove Conway from federal service, declaring that her, quote, actions erode the principal foundation of our democratic system, the rule of law, close quote. Elite media, meanwhile, continue to operate as if a normal democratic election is being held in this country, when it clearly is not. The president has repeatedly made baseless allegations of voter fraud, urged his followers to intimidate voters at the polls, and overruled FDA vaccine safety guidelines in an attempt to push out a COVID vaccine before the election, against the advice of experts. He's ramming through a Supreme Court nomination while multiple members of the Senate are infectious with COVID to secure a pro-Trump court majority that he thinks might keep him in power. And now he's pressuring his cabinet members to use levers of state power to influence the election. Reporting on that pressure as little more than an internecine squabble and leaving it to readers to piece together the critical context and implications, or burying them on page 20 like the Times analysis, or leaving them to the op-ed page, relegating the value of democracy to a matter of opinion, is not enough. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. Trump touts fracking policy in Pennsylvania rally, says Biden will shut it all down. North Dakota seeks to repurpose coronavirus aid for fracking. Fracking is Trump's Hail Mary against Biden. Could fracking actually help the climate? A quick look at recent news coverage would give you the impression that hydraulic fracturing or fracking as a way to extract oil or gas is having some kind of resurgence or reconsideration, such that the idea of banning the process is being deemed a hot electoral issue. What's going on here? Is there new information about the process or the country's energy policy that would make sense of claims like one in a Politico column that, quote, the deployment of some clean energy technologies could depend, perhaps counterintuitively, on fracking, close quote. Joining us now to shed some light on the issue is Mitch Jones, Policy Director at Food and Water Action and Food and Water Watch. He joins us by phone from Baltimore. Welcome to Counterspin, Mitch Jones. Thank you for having me on. It's great to be with you. Well, let's start with some basic information. I mean, you know, big picture, we shouldn't even be having this conversation. We know that we have to keep it in the ground, period. We have to end fossil fuel production. But what are the particular concerns or dangers involved in fracking? There are several concerns and dangers in fracking, both at a localized and at a global level. So locally, fracked oil and gas wells require vast amounts of water, which becomes contaminated and unusable, although it is often used, unfortunately, to irrigate crops or to salt roads in places like Pennsylvania, where you have to do that in the winter. It can contaminate people's drinking water because of underground movement of the fracking fluid to get into people's aquifers. There are increasing evidence 
that there is direct effects, especially for pregnant women of living near heavily fracked areas where there are early uh, births and low birth weights. There are cancer clusters in southwest Pennsylvania that seem very clearly to be linked to heavy fracking. And then, of course, there's the infrastructure that goes with fracking, the, the pipelines, the compressor stations, and everything else that's needed to move the gas from the well into commerce. And this leads to all sorts of other problems, including land disruption, explosions, leaks of methane, which then gets us to the global problem, which, of course, is that fracking is driving climate change and our increasing climate chaos. Well, you, you mentioned early on contaminated water, but the fracking industry is exempt, isn't it, from the Safe Drinking Water Act? Yes, it is. It, it, they have an exemption, which was orchestrated for them in 2005 by Dick Cheney, the former Halliburton CEO, who, of course, was uh, vice president under George W. Bush. And Halliburton, of course, is uh, a large provider of well services for fracking. And it was that exclusion, that Halliburton loophole is what it's known as, that really led to the boom in fracking since 2005. Well, you take regulations out of the way. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, the idea that you get from media coverage is that fracking is controversial, but it's been wildly successful. It's been very, very successful for the industry, for investors, driven a revolution in the U.S. fossil fuel sector, pushed down prices dramatically. Has fracking been all it's cracked up to be, despite the hazards and harms? The short answer is no. No, it it really hasn't. If you look at the business model of fracking, you know, we keep being told that there's this great, look, fracking has unleashed massive amounts of oil and natural gas production in the U.S. There's no doubt about that. We have become the largest producer in the world because of fracking. But in addition to all of the environmental problems and the public health issues, the the climate issues that we just mentioned, the business model that fracking is built upon is essentially almost a Ponzi scheme. You know, we just see collapse after collapse after collapse of businesses in this industry. It's very much still a boom and bust, and we're currently in a bust period. And the Local economies that tie themselves to fracking are going to ride that wave of boom and bust with people coming in to drill, leaving. Fracked wells tend to deplete quickly so that, you know, you get a lot of gas out of a well in Pennsylvania right away, but then it dissipates quickly. So even those people who, you know, allowed the frackers to come in to frack on their property because they were counting on that check, those checks dry up right away. The industry is being propped up by Wall Street and by debt. And so we're just seeing this kind of, like I said, Ponzi scheme of this industry, which it overproduces, especially on the gas side, it overproduces its product, which drives down the prices, which means it has to continue to overproduce in order to try to break even. And natural gas prices haven't been near break even for years. And of course, famously earlier this year, we saw um, oil futures go negative for the first time ever. Well, I'm not being facetious, I really would like to ask you to explain this bridge fuel idea that you see (laughs) all around that somehow fracking isn't ultimately good, it's not ultimately sustainable, but for some reason we need to use it in order to get off coal and move to renewable. 
I'm missing something in that analysis. Yeah, you know, this was an argument that was created by the natural gas industry in order to sell itself as an alternative to coal. And it was very effective for many years. It was adopted by politicians of all stripes. It was pushed by the Obama administration. You know, when Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State, she traveled around the world selling fracking and American natural gas. You know, Obama talked it up. It was a big push to claim that in order to move from coal to renewables, you needed fracked gas. But when academics started to look at the actual climate impacts of the two, it became clear that fracked gas, because of the amount of methane, which is a super potent greenhouse gas, it's 87 times more potent than carbon dioxide in a 20-year frame. Because of that fact and because of the amount of methane that leaks from wellhead to distribution, fracked gas isn't actually any cleaner than coal. So the whole bridge fuel line created by the natural gas industry and fed and then regurgitated by politicians of both parties wasn't only intended to you know, boost this industry, but it turns out that it was a complete lie. The fact of the matter is that natural gas was never going to be cleaner than fracked natural gas was never going to be cleaner than coal looked at on a life cycle basis. And that replacing one with the other wasn't going to be a bridge to renewables. It was going to be a bridge to climate chaos. And that's come to be proven by what we're seeing these days with the wildfires, the uh, out of control, tropical storms, droughts, floods, all of the impacts that have been predicted to be in the future are happening now. And fracking really is a key ingredient for why climate crisis is being brought to us much more quickly than what we were told it was going to be. Well, finally, there's a sense that liberals on the coasts, you know, have a problem with fracking, but it's popular with real Americans in the in the heartland. It sounds as though the communities affected are cottoning on to the harms of fracking. And in fact, it's not as popular as maybe we're being led to believe. So I, I wonder if you can just kind of talk about public opinion. And then there is, in fact, Biden as president can't from a Monday to a Tuesday ban fracking, but there is legislation in Congress to ban fracking, isn't there? There is. So, you know, we keep seeing a lot of these stories, some of the ones that you read the headlines from at the top of the interview, you know, want to convey this pundit class, professional media class idea that in places like Western Pennsylvania uh, or in Ohio, fracking is beloved by everyone. But the public polling just does not say that this is true. There was even a poll earlier this week that showed roughly a 50-50 split in Pennsylvania on fracking. And that's really consistent with a lot of the polling that we've seen. Either a small plurality uh, opposes fracking or a small plurality supports fracking. And a lot of it, of course, is dependent upon how the question is written, which is always the case in polling. But it, it really shows that voters and even voters in areas where fracking is taking place are deeply divided on the issue. But more than that, when you take a look at actual candidates on the ground running on the issue of opposing fracking or opposing the pipelines that come with fracking, we see in Pennsylvania in particular candidates being successful. In 2018, 
Summer Lee ran in Allegheny County for uh, the state legislature in Pennsylvania as an anti-fracking candidate and won. So that's down by Pittsburgh for people who aren't familiar with <laughs> Pennsylvania. And then uh, in Chester County on the other side of the state, there was you know, a huge fight against the Mariner East pipelines. And Danielle uh, Friel-Otten managed to actually flip a Republican-held seat by running in opposition to those pipelines. So if you really look not only at the polling, but at actual votes being cast in actual campaigns being run on the issue of fracking and pipelines, the candidates who are opposed to fracking and opposed to pipelines are winning. And you're right that a Biden president, even if he were inclined to do so, couldn't ban fracking everywhere on his first day in office, although he could stop new fracking permits on public lands, and he has said he will do so, and we are counting on him to fulfill that campaign promise. There are bills in Congress right now that would ban fracking. Senator Sanders in the Senate and Congresswoman uh, Ocasio-Cortez, along with Congressman Darren Soto of Florida, introduced uh, earlier this year the Fracking Ban Act. There are now 21 total co-sponsors on the Fracking Ban Act in the House. And then just this past September, Jan Schakowsky of Illinois and Annette Berrigan of California introduced the Future Generations Protection Act, which would also ban fracking, ban exports of crude oil and natural gas, and also stop new natural gas-fired power plants. So those pieces of legislation are in the present Congress. We fully expect that we will have fracking ban legislation in the next Congress. So even if the Biden administration doesn't want to do it on its own or can't do it on its own, the rest of us can pressure our members of Congress to support a ban on fracking everywhere. We've been speaking with Mitch Jones, Policy Director at Food and Water Action and Food and Water Watch. They're online at foodandwateraction.org and foodandwaterwatch.org. Mitch Jones, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Many things contributed to the murder of Breonna Taylor by Louisville, Kentucky police. Newspaper articles want to walk us through what happened that night, as though the meaning of the event were contained in those frenzied few minutes on March 13th. But of course the conditions for that nightmare were established long before. No analysis can make sense of Taylor's killing, but there is a context that can help us see how we got here. And that's the war on drugs, the cover that has been used to drive incarceration, shift resources, and generally wreak terrific harms in overwhelmingly communities of color. Here to help us see the connections is Matt Sutton, Director of Media Relations at Drug Policy Alliance. He joins us now by phone from here in town. Welcome to Counterspin, Matt Sutton. Thank you for having me. Well, I'll cut to the chase. I was struck by a statement from Drug Policy Alliance's executive director, Cassandra Frederic, that said, had it not been for the drug war, Breonna Taylor would be alive today. Could you just talk about that a bit? What is she telling us there? Obviously, Breonna Taylor's death is something that could have and should have been avoided. You know, as you've already mentioned, you know, the conditions that have been created by the drug war um, you know, have led to this state of militarized policing in the United States. We have a long history of this going back to when Nixon first declared the war on drugs. That was also around the same time that SWAT was created. Those two things 
essentially converged. And the way that the Nixon administration went about policing drugs, it was really escalated under the Reagan administration, was to actually fight it almost as if it were a real war. The same way that we would fight foreign adversaries, we were fighting our own citizens. There was a number of different policies that have been created that have created these conditions. Some of them are like the burn justice grant program that actually provides funding to local police departments connected to the amount of drug arrests that they do. There's also like civil asset forfeiture laws that during drug arrests, they're able to actually seize property, you know, which creates funding for law enforcement. And then there's also the 1033 programs, which actually transfer of military equipment from the Pentagon to local police departments. So you have like this situation here that's created where we're actually like setting up our local police department very much like the military. And the drug war is really also what started the no-knock warrant, Mm -hmm. which was used in the case of Breonna Taylor. This isn't an isolated incident. Police have, based on really false information, as it appears to be with the Breonna Taylor case, where they've used this false information to obtain these no-knock warrants. They burst into somebody's home or into their bedroom in the middle of the night and open fire. These officers were in plain clothes. They didn't announce themselves. They just burst in. What are you supposed to do? Well, we're accustomed to think of the drug war as racialized, as racist, but it's also gendered. I I learned from the Alliance that more than 61 percent of women in federal prison are there for nonviolent drug offenses. That's dramatic, but we really don't often hear about that. It definitely is concerning. Across gender lines, you know, there is a disproportionate amount of people that are in jails and prisons on drug charges. It's definitely more acute. Women. Yeah, and with unsurprisingly, I would guess, uh, black women almost twice as likely to be incarcerated than white women, and Native American women being incarcerated at six times the rate of white women. It's not that it can't be racist and sexist at the same time, you know? No, and I mean, that's what we've seen with the drug war. And again, that was also created with the inception of the war on drugs, something that we've definitely learned more about in recent times. I mean, I think there were suspicions of it all along that the war on drugs was created to really target these communities, Black, Brown, Indigenous communities. But it's only recently that, you know, we've actually had people from the Nixon administration that on record have admitted to it that it wasn't about the drugs at all. It was about criminalizing these communities of color. And, you know, and even before the modern drug war, when you look back in the 1800s, those were some of the first drug laws that were created were to criminalize Chinese people for their opium use, criminalize Mexicans for their use of marijuana, despite the fact that White people were already using marijuana, but just referring to it as cannabis. So, you know, we have a long history of criminalizing communities of color through drugs. What we've seen is that, again, drug use is used as justification to harass, assault, and in cases like Breonna Taylor or George Floyd, to actually kill them. 
And then after the fact, they try to use drug use or drug involvement as the justification as well. So like with George Floyd, they want to point to the fact that he had fentanyl in his system and they're saying, oh, in any other case, this would have been determined an overdose. But that's not the case. We have a video where we see somebody having their knee on his neck for over eight minutes while they literally take the life out of him. Drug dealer, drug user, for many years, it's kind of been like a thought stopper. You know, once you define someone or even whole communities that way, it becomes acceptable to treat them a certain way. Their lives are no longer seen as valuable. Media play a role, too, don't they, in in hyping certain issues and encouraging some responses over others. Is there anything that you would like to see reporters do more of or less of in covering stories related to the drug war? Absolutely. I mean, this is something that, you know, in my job, I'm like constantly fighting the language that's used in reporting. I mean, it can be incredibly stigmatizing, you know, by like reporting on people as addicts. Sometimes it's appalling. Sometimes they're using terms like junkies, even the images that they're using in stories. They're never showing images of people. They're showing images of dirty syringes on the ground. It really doesn't help anything. You know, it really makes the case harder and it perpetuates that whole image of dirty drug users, people that are associated with crime. That's just really not the case. We can't just look at these as isolated incidents. We need to look at actually holding these institutional forces responsible. We need to take a hard look at the activities of agencies like the DEA. Is it necessary to give military equipment to local police department, to police citizens? That's really the kind of thing that we really need to take a hard look at in our reporting. Let's not let it stop at these isolated incidents in like the specific trials today. You know, I know that even today, I'm seeing a lot of coverage over that because you probably saw Derek Chauvin, the officer that had his knee on George Floyd's neck, they dropped the third degree murder charge. They've still let the second degree murder charge and the second degree manslaughter charge stand but they've dropped one of them. So, of course, that's what all the coverage is on. So I think, you know, yes, it's important to cover these things, but we shouldn't limit it to just these specific police officers or what happened in this case, but look at this as the systemic crisis that's been happening for far too long. How do we change that story? All right, then. We've been speaking with Matt Sutton, Director of Media Relations at Drug Policy Alliance. You can find their work online at drugpolicy.org. Matt Sutton, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you so much for having me. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the National Media Watch Group based in New York. If you missed part of today's show or you'd like to hear previous shows, you can find shows and transcripts on our website, FAIR.org. The show is engineered by Erica Rosado. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.